Please turn with me uh, in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 20 today. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 20. Let's go ahead and begin in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for the sufficiency of your word. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for the fact that you have made a way to redeem unworthy sinners. I pray that you would help us, even as we saw at the 9 o'clock service, to put to death our own sinfulness, that we would engage actively in that battle and in that fight, and that we would not um, give up or give in to that, but that we would rather honor you in all that we say and all that we do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. There is a uh, problem in philosophy that philosophers call the problem of the one in the many. It's not a problem that perhaps many of us have thought about. But there is a certain difficulty uh, in bringing together uh, distinctions that exist between the general and the particular. And let me explain what I'm meaning here before it sounds like we're going on an obscure philosophical wild goose chase, because there actually is some relevance to what we're, going, we're talking about in the text today. I'll give you an illustration of this. How should we talk about a dog? Should we be more specific and call it a German shepherd? But then that's not even specific enough because there are different kinds of German shepherds or different breeds, and amongst even these different breeds, there are different characteristics, and so should we call, as some people would like to propose, things as a sum total of all the parts that make them up. Uh, instead of calling it a German shepherd, we can call it a group of black, tan, and brown fur combined with a cardiovascular system and muscles. Well, that's too specific to be meaningful and to mean anything to anybody. Or we could go the other way and just call them uh, a bean. And that's so general that you could be talking about a flower or anything else. And so do we talk about it in terms of the specific or in the general? And we would say that uh, having categories are helpful things. Some would rather that we focus on the many, that is the individual parts. And this would be describing us as the sum total of our parts. And some would rather focus on the one, something maybe out of a Hindu religion. We are all one kind of a thing. Now, before I lose you here, let me explain to you how this is applicable in our text today. The text in front of us talks to us about the church and the individual members inside of the church. And so we are, as believers in Christ, we are part of the local church. We are one. We can talk about ourselves in terms of the local church. We are the corporate church, we could say, in a sense, or, or the institution of the church. But at the same time, we are individually members within the church, the many. There are many of us individual people that have different personalities and different uh, characteristics and so on and so forth in the church. And so the debate rages on today amongst evangelicals what role the church plays in the individual Christian's life. How am I, as an individual Christian, 
supposed to relate to the church. What is the relationship, we might say, between the tree and the forest? What is the relationship between the Christian and the church? Should we lose sight of the individual? Should we lose sight of the corporate entity of the church? Should the church be described only in terms of the members that make up the church? Or should the church be described only as the church with no regard to the individuals inside of the church? This is kind of part of the tension of what we see in the text today. Now, as we begin here, I want to make one observation on where I suggest that we are as a culture today. And let me give you uh, maybe an example of where culture has been in the past and maybe uh, is not there anymore. But one of the errors of Rome has been the exaltation of the church as an institution without regard to the individuals within it. And thus, that church, if you could call it that, is plagued with the corruption that has rivaled political institutions. And we all can point to examples in church history and in modern history where this is the case. But on the whole, the church in America today, I don't think faces that problem on the whole as much as the other problem, and that is American Christianity wants to de-institutionalize the church to the point of making it almost irrelevant. And we've seen that time and time and time again, where the church really is kind of outdated, so to speak, and we could do Christianity without the church. That is to say, as long as we have the many, it doesn't matter if we have the one. Generally speaking, today, culture is chafing against institutions, and we can all point to examples of institutions going corrupt, but that doesn't mean that they are irrelevant. The institution of marriage is an example, the institution of the church as well. Barna did a study and found that there is an increasing percentage of Christians who are not attending church, and probably didn't need a Barna study to tell us that, but there is an increasing percentage of Christians doing this, and this really reflects the common sentiment of people who would say, I love Jesus, but not the church. Have you ever heard that sentiment before? Maybe said in a different way, but I love Jesus, but not the church. There are, if you are not aware, an increasing percentage of Christians who are living out their daily lives with this sentiment. I can be a Christian, I can be involved in Christianity, I can love Jesus, but be disconnected from the body, disconnected from the church. They believe that they can love Christ but have no commitment to the church. Uh, Pastor Nate Pickowitz noted rather straightforwardly that I love Jesus but not the church is not a Christian sentiment. And apparently the clicker is not up here, so if you guys want to keep up with me to the best of your ability back there, that would be great. Uh, Oftentimes, uh, you will hear somebody say, I can worship God just as much in the woods as I can in church. Anyone ever heard that before? Okay. I can worship God just as much on the fishing boat as I can in church. Right? You've heard this kind of sentiment before. Uh, A couple of years ago, someone that I know locally in the community here invited me to um, a community meeting of maybe half a dozen people or so. And he said he wanted me to come attend this meeting, but he didn't tell me what the meeting was about. And so there's always a little bit of (laughs) what exactly is going on uh, in this particular situation. So I said, well, I'll come. And uh, I went to this meeting 
and I was at one of the community uh, restaurants and sat down and the meeting was all about the problem of not having enough community members involved in participating in taking care of the Orville Community Garden. Okay, I don't know if you knew that there, there was a community garden, but there is a community garden in Orville. And so they wanted to drum up support for the community garden. And one of the ways they thought they could drum up support was to have me there, and then I could announce to all you guys, let's gather around the community garden and go and participate and be involved in the community garden. Um, now, if you want to do that, that's great, okay? Um, garden is great, and community garden is great, especially if maybe you're thinking, let me find an evangelistic opportunity here. Um, but having a community garden is, quite frankly, not the mission of the church, and so they were less, uh, not, 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 uh, they were disappointed, rather, at my lack of interest in this. But I want to say something that one of the men told me in this conversation, because inevitably, if you invite a pastor to a conversation like this, it's going to get religious at some point. And so these people uh, were trying to encourage me to drum up a lot of support here. And one of the men in this group said basically something along the lines of, I feel like I can worship God just as much in the garden as I can by attending church, a.k.a don't need to go to church. You can just go to the garden instead and worship God there. Um, now, of course, so that I'm fairly and accurately represented, there is a kernel of truth. We can worship God anywhere we go. You can worship God in the garden and in the car and driving down the road and so on and so forth. Um, but I think we would have to acknowledge on the whole, this is a distorted view of the church. This is accepting the fact that the church is comprised of many members and yet rejecting the fact that the church is one body. The church is a corporate body. And to borrow the terminology from the text today, it is possible, or is it possible, that a hand or an eye or an ear can exist if it were detached from the body? Can you take a member of Christ's body, remove it from the body, and isolate itself, and then say, it's good? No, it cannot exist apart from the body. Neither can a Christian exist apart from the body. Now, additionally, the person who says, I can worship God just as much on the boat or in the garden or in the woods as I can in church, is wrong on another account, a second account, and it is this reason. It is wrong because you cannot exercise your spiritual gifts to bless others. If God has gifted you to teach... How are, going, how are you going to use that on the boat? Are you going to preach to the fish? What, what, what are you, how are you going to exercise? This is the whole point of this passage in front of us, is that we are exercising our spiritual gifts, not in isolation, but to the blessing of the body. And if you take yourself and isolate yourself from the church, how are you going to bless the body with your giftedness? How are you going to do this in the garden? Are you going to have a Bible study with the plants? I mean, you can't, what are you going to do? This view of Christianity adopts the world's mindset of destroying institutions and seeking to destroy systems. It's a page taken out of Marx. You're only viewing the parts and never viewing the whole. And so we, need to, we, we are called to 
proclaim a robust view of the church that prioritizes our service to others. Let's read the passage in front of us. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 12, going through verse 20. For just as the body is one and has many members, see that, one and many, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, there it is again, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, that's many, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts in one body. We're going to look at this in three sections. There's a principle given in 12 through 14. He gives several illustrations about this, and then he concludes with God's providence. We begin in verse 12 with this statement, just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the, uh, of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. One body, many members. The one and the many. It is not uh, many to the exclusion of the one or one to the exclusion of the many. We are, we might say, as individual Christians, part of something that is bigger than ourselves. The church is not just individuals, it is one, and yet it is one composed of individuals. As an example of this, the two individuals within a marriage do not take precedence over the institution of marriage. There is uh, one institution of marriage, you have one marriage, but then there are uh, two individuals within that marriage. And so the individuals within themselves, or within the marriage, have to submit themselves to the one institution of marriage. You cannot uh, prostitute yourself, that is a violation of the institute of marriage. You cannot commit adultery because that is a violation of the institution of marriage. Your individual will and your individual desire within marriage is constrained by the institution of marriage. What does the institution of marriage look like? How is it to function? How has God ordered it and ordained it? And that is going to govern the way that the individuals within that marriage should behave themselves. Now, additionally, the individual members within a marriage are uh, not only uh, seen as uh, one, but they are seen as individual people. They, uh, their, their personal identity is not erased. You don't get so absorbed into the institution of marriage that you lose your own personality or your own desires or your own idiosyncrasies. Those things do remain, although many of us would have to admit that we become more like each other over time and our idiosyncrasies become the same. Uh, and yet there are individuals within this. The same is true of the church, and this is what the passage is teaching in front of us. One body, many members. And if the body, by the way, to draw this conclu uh, conclusion from marriage as well, if the body is functioning as it's supposed to be, 
uh, like it or not, we're going to start looking like one another a little bit more. We are going to be, because we are a church family, we are a one, one body. And as we saw in the introduction, today's error is not so much the many members part. We all love individuality. We all love and idolize individuality to an extreme oftentimes. The error today is the one body part. That is what we want to disregard. Again, on the whole, broad brush, not every situation. In general, we want to be free from any structures that would impose anything on us. The church is viewed as constraining, as suffocating, as removing my individual freedom. And I think we see this all over culture. Everywhere we turn, people want to get rid of structure and accountability. Do you see this in our culture today? Other cultures have had the opposite error. Our culture, on the whole, wants to get rid of anything that has structure to it. And, of course, the rebellion against gender categories is part of that. That is uh, the belief that my personal feelings and my personal autonomy and my individuality takes precedence over divinely given order and structure. There is a structure to gender that is trying to be erased today in the name of the many, or we might say the individuals. Or consider the millennial obsession, and yes, I am a millennial, consider the millennial obsession with living in a van down by the river, okay? You know the stereotype here. That is, uh, in a sense, a rejection of institution, of commitment, of love for others. I'm going to isolate myself. Or consider the fact that people today live together without getting married, sometimes indefinitely, no commitment, no ordering of the life as God has ordained. Just do whatever you want to do. No, get rid of the institution of marriage. Um, I would even suggest that the rise and fall of the front porch is a symptom of this problem. There is, we want to isolate ourselves to the extreme. There is no sense of community anymore. There is no sense of... Uh, you know, we, we are um, part of this geographic area. There is a retreat from that into isolation, into individuality, and so on and so forth. And of course, more to the context of this passage, the rejection of commitment to the local church through church membership. Are you with the body or not? Where are you? This is what the passage is going at. We are many members, yes, but we are also one body. Are you part of this body or are you not part of this body? And the point of verse 12 is that the church is comprised of many members, one body. The church is not an institution at the expense of the individuals inside of the institution, and the individuals do not exist at the expense of the institution. Both exist, the members and the body. The individual Christian needs the church body, and the church body needs the individual Christian. You need the church body. And even if you don't think you do, you do. And you live in isolation, and that is not what God designed for us in our sanctification. Why? Because of verse 13. 
For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. This is the unity aspect, one body. And then we go into the many, Jews, Greeks, slaves, free. That's the many people that comprise the body. And all were made to drink of one unified, we could say here, spirit. There is unity in the body. The principle here is this. Because of the unity that we have in Christ, we can have unity as a church body. In fact, we must. Jews are part of the body. Greeks are part of the body. Slaves, free, all part of the body of Christ. Paul is talking to a world that was emphasizing distinctions, just like our world, ironically, does today. Jews were, of course, very interested in making a distinction between themselves and the Greeks. <laughs> I'm Jew. They're Greek. We're not the same thing. They were very interested in, in, in defining the differences between these two groups. And your status, by the way, in that culture as a slave or a free man was a very big deal as well. And so we're emphasizing all the differences and the distinctions. And so Paul has to make a statement here to say, guys, by the way, Jews, Greeks, slaves, and free, all part of the body of Christ. Stop making these distinctions to the expense of the unity that we have in Christ. You are one church. He says that they were all baptized into one body in verse 13 here. That is to say they were all immersed into one body. They were all brought into one body of the church. Now here's the point. Your identification with Christ and his body takes precedence over everything else. That is the most important thing about you is that you are in Christ and part of his body. You don't come to the church saying, you know, uh, I'm Jew, I'm Greek, I'm slave, I'm free. You come to the church and say, I am in Christ. And in the same way today, the temptation is not to make the distinction between Jew and Greek, slave and free. The temptation is to say, I'm white, I'm black, I'm rich, I'm poor, I'm Hispanic, I'm Indonesian. You're in Christ. We are in Christ Regardless of your background, regardless of your socioeconomic status, regardless of any of those things, if you are in Christ, then you are part of this body, and there is unity inside of that. And not only do you say, I am in Christ, you say, those people over there who are part of this local church are also in Christ. We are all part of this. Do you remember uh, Galatians 3.28? This is actually a parallel passage. 1 Corinthians 12.13 says, Jews, Greeks, slave, and free, all part of one body. You remember when we did our study on critical race theory at the 9 a.m. service, we looked at Galatians 3.28. This is a parallel text. Um, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all what? One in Christ Jesus. This is what the gospel does. If you remember this principle, it is this. In order to have horizontal peace, in order to reconcile horizontal relationships, the broken relationships that exist between fellow men and women, it is that you have to have vertical restoration first. Peace with God leads to peace with men. And you want to have peace in all of the division that's going on in our culture right now with ethnicity, and that is 
preach more gospel. Preach the truth of the word. Because bringing people into the body of Christ brings reconciliation. And that's what Galatians 3.28 is teaching us. That's what uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is teaching us. There is, yes, great diversity in the church. But that is not really what is being marveled at here. It is our unity and our oneness in that diversity. How could all these people get along? It's because of what Christ has done for us. We've been baptized into the same body. We were made to drink of the same spirit. We are saved by the same Savior. Why do we need to be reminded of our unity? Because of verse 14. For the body, uh, for the body does not consist of one member but of many. And so the fact that we are many should not overshadow our unity and our oneness in Christ. Warts and all, this church is family. Right? Act like it. We all have warts, and we all have things that are worse than warts, okay? We all have sin that we bring here. And, and one of the things that has become very popular in our culture as a whole is we, we have, not every area has this, but in America, there, there is a church on every corner. And the easy thing that, that people can do again and again is Instead of working to restore relationships, I'm just going to go to the next church. And the call is for us to stick with where we are and work out those things through repentance, reconciliation, so on and so forth. That can only be done through the gospel. There's a story that was told at my grandfather's funeral a few years ago. And um, I actually don't... I, I, at the funeral, I had heard this story for the first time. My grandfather uh, liked to go to Olive Garden a lot, and we went there with him all the time. And um, but I don't remember this particular story. It must have happened a different time. But someone, one of my relatives at the funeral, uh, told a story about this. And I don't think they have this slogan anymore. But at, at the time, Olive Garden had a slogan uh, that said, "When you're here, you're family." Okay, anyone remember this slogan? None of you eat at Olive Garden, so it doesn't matter. Okay. Um, so my grandfather gets into Olive Garden, and they're waiting in that front lobby area there to be seated. And there's some sort of a display here in the front, and in this display was some sort of a book. Um, and I don't recall exactly what book it was, but my grandfather picked up the book, and he started thumbing through this book and ended up really liking this book. It was probably some Italian culture book or something or whatever. And so he was looking through this and really enjoyed this. And, you know, the, the lady who kind of seats you is standing there. And he said, can I have this book? And, she, oh, no, that's, you know, display book. Or, you know, but I really want to have this book. And, and finally, he made enough of a, an issue about it that she calls the manager out. <laughs> And he says to the manager, you know, can I, can I take this book home with me? Can I have this book? I really like this book. And the manager is like, no, this is a, you know, uh, this is a book for the, you know, display, and this is not for people to take, whatever. And so my grandfather, um, he had an ace in the pocket, and he said, but 
when you're here, you're family. <laughs> and so the manager promptly gave him the book to take home with him. Uh, maybe that's corny. But this church is family. We are made up of individuals inside of this church. And some of the individuals inside of this church, Crossview Church, may try your patience. Okay? And if no one here has ever tried your patience, you haven't been here long enough. Okay? There are people in this church body who will try your patience. Probably me, okay? Will be one of them. But we are a family. We are, as this passage says, one body. We're not just the sum total of our individual parts. It is not accurate to describe us just as individual Christians who happen to come together. That would be the same thing as in our opening illustration, trying to describe a dog as a collection of fur and a cardiovascular system and so on and so forth. It's a dog. Okay? Yes, it has individual parts, but it is something in a category. And the same is true of us as a church. Yes, we are individual members, but to talk about us in terms of only the individuals fails to miss or misses our oneness and our unity and the fact that we are a family. You cannot talk about individual Christians without talking about the body. And so, yes, it is appropriate at times to say, here's the fur of the dog, and here's the, 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 the nose of the dog, and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. But at some point, you've got to say, it is the dog. And the same is true with us. Yes, we're individuals, but we are a body. And this is a unique body, different from other local churches across the world. We are a family. We are unified. We are one body. We have each other's backs, so to speak. We serve one another. We love one another. And we sacrifice for one another. What this means, practically speaking then, is that we do not have the option to fail to exercise our giftedness. You are required by God to serve the church with the areas that God has gifted you with. Fail there, and you fail to act like family. And that's what these illustrations show us in verses 15 through 17. He says this, If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would, the sense of, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? The point of these verses should be fairly self-explanatory. He's simply saying that you should not be resentful for the way God has gifted you, and perhaps more to the point, you should not be resentful for the ways God has not gifted you. Perhaps God has not granted you the gift of discernment, but you really wish you did have that gift. God has instead gifted you with something that is behind the scenes. 
And you look at that and you long for this ability to speak wisdom to the people and to, to, for people to marvel at your, your discernment and your insight and all of these things. Well, then you stop serving in ways that God has gifted you. And you say, well, I'm not an eye, so what use is it to participate in the church? You know, I don't have the gift, you know, I don't have pro- prophecy or, or able to teach. So what use is this particular, why, why use this gift? That is more pride than it is anything else. A physical body needs feet, eyes, hands, ears, etc. And the church needs a variety of gifts. So the question is this, who are you to rebel against the way the creator made you and refuse to bless the church? Who are you to refuse to exercise the gifts God has given you to be a blessing to the local body? You must use your giftedness. Who are you to rebel against the way God's made you? Who are you to have a temper tantrum, so to speak? And chances are, by the way, if God did grant you that gift, you would still be what? Discontent. MacArthur notes, selfishness is never satisfied and envy is never content. It's like a bottomless pit. What then are we to do? We are to recognize that the giftedness God has given to us is a gift God has given to us. That he has given to us at his discretion and according to his wisdom. And that is exactly what the last two verses state. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. As he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. So verses 18 through 20 can be summarized with this statement. Did you notice where it says, he has gifted you according to as he chose? Okay? So we can summarize it with this. God is God and you are not. You're not God. I'm not God. Any questions? <laughs> right? That means something. It has implications. Your giftedness, or lack thereof, is a direct result of God's providence and his lordship. Who arranged the members of Crossview Church? Who decided how we would be gifted? Who put you here? The text says, as he chose. You notice what it doesn't say. What does it not say? It doesn't say, as I chose... It doesn't say according to my preferences. It doesn't say as God chose so long as I don't veto it. It says as he chose. End of story. And just for good measure, we may want to reflect on Psalm 115.3, although there's about 100 verses that we could look at. Our God is in the heavens. He does as he, all that he pleases. This, by the way, um, I mean, we, this text very clearly is stating the the giftedness in the church is a direct result of sovereignty. 
And in our highly individualized culture and society, this is a hard truth. This is a hard truth inside the church. God's sovereignty. And I don't know, I I might say if there's anything harder than convincing unbelievers that God is sovereign, it's convincing evangelicals that God is sovereign. And yet again and again, we see he rules, he reigns, passage after passage, text after text. God is God, you are not. God is God, you are not. And God has chosen how the people here at Crossview would be gifted, and he expects us to use this accordingly. And finally, Paul says once more, The main theme of the passage is that the church is a unified whole, and it is made up of individual members, many parts, one body. There's an old story about a pastor who visited, was out visiting, and one of his church members uh, was not attending church. He had lapsed in his church attendance. And so the pastor, uh, fulfilling what God has called him to do in terms of shepherding the people of his church, decided that he was going to go visit this man. And so he goes to the man's house, and he knocks on the door, and the church member sees the pastor, and he knows, you know, he's in trouble with the pastor, and none of them, they don't say anything to each other, and he invites the pastor in, and both of them kind of just go sit down in front of the fireplace. And both the pastor and the man sit there for quite some time, and neither of them says anything to each other. Um, they're just staring into the fire, and after a, a certain amount of time passes, the pastor um, He takes the fire iron, picks it up, and he reaches into the fire, and he picks kind of one of the center logs that is roaring, hot flames are coming off of this log. He takes the fire iron, and he kind of knocks this flaming hot log outside of the fire, so it's, you know, kind of sitting on the slate there, or whatever it is, and... And then he gets back in his chair, and he just sits down, and a long time goes by, and neither member says anything, or neither person says anything to each other. And over time, the log begins to die out, and eventually there's no more fire in the log. And finally, after a little while, the church member who had not been attending church looks over at the pastor, and he says, okay, I'll be at church on Sunday. (laughs) This is what happens when we hold ourselves from the body. Yes, there, there are two things that are happening. You are not blessing the church members that are there, but you yourself, that flame is dying out, so to speak. And you need the church body to grow in your sanctification. 
Every Christian has been gifted by the Spirit. Every Christian is designed to be part of the body. There is no such thing as an isolated Christian. There is no such thing as a Christian who never uses his giftedness inside of the local church. Now, I am, by the way, a very big fan of parachurch organizations. Uh, I love Answers in Genesis. Okay, If you've not been down there, you need to go. I love good, theologically sound seminaries, which are becoming fewer and far between lately. I love Christian fostering ministries and so on and so forth. And I love and cherish the way God has used gifted people for these organizations. But one thing I have to remind us is that Jesus promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, not the parachurch. And if you are not utilizing your giftedness here in the local church, then you are called to repent and start serving in the local church. And if you are interested to know how you can serve or to know, uh, talk about, I'm not sure how I'm gifted, but I'm happy to talk to you this week. Happy to work through those things or work through that with someone else in the church. I have uh, two points of application today in light of all this that I'd like to draw our attention to. Number one is this. Acknowledge both the forest and the trees. And, of course, that's to say the church and the individual believer. By using your individual gifts to serve the corporate body, reject the life of a spectator Christian. We are not called to be spectators. We are called to be involved in the life of the church, in the body of the church. And so we are not to take the view that uh, we are just individuals and it doesn't matter how I'm... It matters to be at church. So that's application number one. Application number two, in line with God's sovereignty in the closing verses of the text today, cultivate contentment, not resentment, for the gifts that God has given you. God has gifted us in some way, each of us, even if we don't know how or are aware how, God has gifted us and he has called us to serve one another in the local church. And so may God grant us the grace to do that, to get in the trenches, to serve one another for the sake of Christ. We're a family. Let's act like it. Thank you, God, for today, your grace, your wisdom, the way that you structured the church the way that you did. Help us as we go that we might honor you in this way, that we might be involved for the sake of Christ and the gospel, that you'd strengthen our church, that you'd strengthen the churches around the country and the world so that we might honor you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.